From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are VOA White House correspondent Anita Powell and VOA executive producer Steve Reddish. Welcome Anita and Steve. Well, here are the issues. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says Russia's offensive to take control of eastern Ukraine is in full swing. He vowed, quote, no matter how many Russian troops are driven there, we will fight. We will defend ourselves. We will do it every day, unquote. Pressure is mounting for the U.S. and NATO countries to provide additional military assistance, and the U.S. is prepping another $800 million in military assistance for Ukraine. Russia has handed an honorary title to a brigade accused by Ukraine of atrocities and mass killings in Bucha. In early April, the Ukrainian Defense Ministry alleged the unit occupied the town following Russia's invasion on February 24th and committed what they say were war crimes. The Department of Justice said it would appeal a ruling striking down the mask mandate for public transportation after the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, requested it appeal. U.S. District Judge Catherine Kimball Mazel had ruled the CDC's mask mandate for travelers was no longer in effect on airplanes and other public transport methods. The Biden administration announced new actions that will help bring millions of student loan borrowers closer to receiving debt forgiveness. Republican-led states are enacting a wave of new abortion restrictions, including Tennessee, Florida, Kentucky, and Oklahoma just recently. Caroline Kitchener, who covers reproductive rights for The Washington Post, says reproductive rights are under attack as the Supreme Court appears poised to overturn Roe v. Wade. Well, those are the issues, and let's get started. Well, Anita, Russia declared that it has launched its new offensive for control of eastern Ukraine with the bombardment of targets across the Donbass region, attacking along a broad front over 300 miles long. Ukrainian officials said this marked the opening of a new and potentially climatic phase of the war. How significant is this phase of the war and what does it mean for Ukraine? This is definitely a significant development, as highlighted by Pentagon officials this week when uh, spokesman John Kirby highlighted exactly what the Ukrainians have said and said this is a new phase in the conflict. The Russian held Russian aligned sort of territories of Donetsk and Lugansk, which have been in play for about eight years now since Russia first moved into these areas in 2014. So this is definitely a significant thing that's happening in this conflict that the U.S. is acknowledging. And the way that they are responding, as they say, is by just flooding the zone with weapons. So far, Congress has allocated $3.5 billion in weapons assistance to Ukraine, including that $800 million package that was announced last week by the president, and they've fulfilled about 2.4 billion of it so far. These weapons are moving just at an astounding pace into this country. They're just basically flooding into this country. And that is how the U.S. and NATO allies, it has to be said, are responding to this new phase in this conflict. And that new phase seems to be moving eastward toward the Donbass and Russia retrying to recreate its land bridge from the Donbass to Crimea. It's interesting that they've decided to kind of wait out the last holdouts in Mariupol, the port city that's been under siege for weeks. 
Those last holdouts are brave. There could be some question as to whether or not they should go ahead and surrender Mariupol in a way to take those fighters, those people who are still left, reposition them and fight future battles. That said, it's going to be difficult for Russia to do anything other than try to find a way to be able to claim some sort of victory. And it seems like President Putin is intent on using the VE Day, May 9th celebration, as a way to find a way to declare some sort of victory in Ukraine. Also, with these weapons flowing in to Ukraine on Russia state media, some anchors there are charging that these supplies amount to direct Western engagement in the fight against Russia. How is the West responding to this claim? I wouldn't deny that it's direct Western engagement. The Western nations are sending Ukraine the weaponry it needs to both defend itself and try to push back the Russian invasion. I think the Western nations are interested in supplying Ukraine with everything it needs just short of putting people into Ukraine to either operate or train Ukrainians on how to use the equipment. There's very little Soviet-made equipment that the Ukrainians have been trained on that is still left in various different countries' inventory. The former Soviet republics, as well as the former Eastern Bloc nations that bought all of the Soviet armament over the last 40 years is sending as much of it as it can to the Ukrainians already. So now Ukraine is getting into stocks of weaponry that the Americans made, that other NATO countries made. It is different than the Soviet weaponry that they're used to handling, that they've been trained on. So that is going to take some time for the Ukrainians to master using that equipment. That said, they've been very resilient. They've been incredibly resourceful in keeping the battle away from Kiev and in some ways repelling the Russian onslaught. But being able to get that weaponry in and get it used is going to take a little bit more time. Steve draws an important distinction and highlights kind of the fine line that the U.S. and NATO allies are kind of walking here and saying, you know, we'll send you weapons, but we will not ourselves step a foot over your border. And to wit, the Pentagon said this week that they are outside of Ukraine, training the Ukrainian military on use of some of these weapons that Steve mentioned, for example, the howitzers, which are pretty big projectile artillery items. That's a bit of a clumsy way of describing a howitzer, but they do need a little bit of expertise to learn to operate. And so that seems to be the line that is being drawn. We're not going to ourselves go in. We're going to let you defend your own country, but we will teach you how to use these tools that we are providing you. And so far, that seems to be the strategy that the U.S. at least is committed to. Also, the U.S. appears to be committed to sending another $800 million dollars in a military assistance package for Ukraine. Does it appear that this will include more weapons? Yeah, this is a really hefty package. It includes about 16 helicopters. It includes howitzers. It includes just dizzying amount of small arms and bullets and 30,000 flak jackets. And it also includes, I have to highlight this, an unknown number of Claymore munitions, which for much of the world are simplified as anti-personnel mines, which is a very 
very interesting choice on the part of the Pentagon to supply the Ukrainians by request. The Ukrainians requested these munitions, which are so controversial and which are the subject of a 1997 treaty banning anti-personnel mines. The line that the U.S. is drawing, incidentally, here is that they're saying that they've taken off the tripwire off of these munitions, so you have to command detonate them, so they can no longer be activated by, say, a child walking by. You have to actually push the button. It, it brings a human into the equation. But these munitions are pretty simple and possibly very easy to modify to a different format where they can be victim activated. So this is some interesting choices that the Ukrainian army is making to hold their territory and that the U.S. is going along with. I spoke to a military analyst who explained that the coming war in the Donbass region is going to be mostly a ground war with Russia using tanks and armored personnel carriers and basically trying to send infantry in to be able to take and hold the Donbass and then try to, to create that land bridge. So the mines are there to try and, hate to say it, but try to blow up those Russian armored personnel carriers and try to win the war on the ground there, while at the same time trying to bring in anti-aircraft missiles and batteries that can shoot down or intercept missiles and shoot down aircraft. So the next couple of months of the war may be a real slog as the Russians try to move on the ground, on the muddy ground that is still springtime in Ukraine. Let's just be clear about this. The U.S., I think, is accustomed to seeing conflicts at a bit of a remove. If you look at the global war on terror in Iraq and Afghanistan, the U.S. has had fewer casualties in that 20-year war than the Russian army has sustained in the last six weeks in Ukraine. I think all wars are unpleasant and nasty, but this one is especially dirty and nasty and fought on the ground, person to person. And we should all be aware of that, I think, because we should all be aware of like what is happening on the European continent in a state that was aligned with the rules-based world order. And now that seems to have completely fallen apart. And this is very savage human behavior. And I think we should never lose sight of that. Absolutely. And further on that point, wanted to talk just a little bit on the war crimes aspect. Russia has handed an honorary title to a brigade accused by Ukraine of atrocities and mass killings in Bucha. However, Ukraine's prosecutor general said in early April, the bodies of at least 410 civilians had been recovered from areas in the wider Kiev region after Ukrainian forces regained complete control. Before collecting the bodies, authorities are photographing and documenting them to collect evidence that may form the basis of a war crimes investigation. But yet Russia still continues to deny that these killings of civilians are occurring. What is your take on this aspect of the war? This is an information war in addition to being a hand-to-hand -hand combat war. And that is the Russian perspective on this is that these are invented atrocities. The Ukrainian perspective has been very clear and the U.S. is aligned with the Ukrainian perspective, but this is definitely like all wars. Also, there's an information angle to it. Putin is playing the long game. And war crimes take a while to investigate and take even longer to bring the case to the International Criminal Court. So Putin is playing the long game as well as the information and propaganda game. And I 
don't necessarily think this is going to end or stop any war crimes investigation, but know that any war crimes investigation is going to take years, if not decades, to conclude. Let's not forget, by the way, that to get a referral to any of the international courts, it needs to go through the UN Security Council, of which Russia is a permanent member with veto power. So this may never see the light of day in a court. Also, there is supposedly a deal in place now or an agreement that is supposed to work out for women, children and the elderly that they would be safely able to evacuate from these besieged cities. So is Russia adhering to this? Let's just look at their track record in the last six weeks in adhering to the imposition of humanitarian corridors. That hasn't gone very well. We've seen those galling images of, you know, families shot dead by Russian soldiers while trying to flee to safety. So, I mean, I think Russia's record speaks for itself here. Let's move on now to our next topic. Here in the U.S., a district judge, Catherine Kimball Mazel, ruled the CDC's mask mandate for travelers is no longer in effect on airplanes and other public transport methods. However, the Department of Justice said it would appeal after the CDC requested it appeal. So is this sending out mixed messages? Let me just start with an anecdote. Here in Washington, D.C., I travel mostly by train. So a day after the mask mandate had expired, In a packed train car in Washington, D.C., 60 people, many of them standing, all but three were wearing masks. So one does have to wonder if the effect of this ruling, how it's going to be seen across the United States. One imagines that in other parts of the country, people probably whipped off their masks and vowed to never put them on again. But this mask mandate, you know, it it does still come down to personal choice. And I think we've crossed that bridge in this pandemic between, you know, this collective responsibility and personal choice. And it does appear that in some of the major metropoles in the United States, people are still continuing to mask, you know, at their own discretion. As well, President Trump at the time when the pandemic started and other government officials and elected officials made masking a lightning rod issue and politicized it, leaving it up to individual states, municipalities and businesses to both impose and enforce masking efforts. So whether it's on public transportation, going to the grocery store, going to school, masking has been a political issue for the last two years here in the United States. So much so that the country is split over ending the masking mandate for public transportation. The Kaiser Family Foundation showed it's basically a 50-50 split as far as whether or not to end the masking mandate. Democrats, are more than 30% more likely than Republicans to wear masks outside of the home, whether there's a mandate or not. My observation is that many of the people I've encountered who do not wear masks or who have not been vaccinated, they point to the fact that vaccines or masking reduce the chances. They admit that, but they don't prevent you from getting COVID. And since they're not perfect, why use a mask or get a vaccine. And that has been a prevailing understanding and a prevailing attitude toward masking, especially among those who don't mask, that I found over the last two years, not just recently as far as whether masking mandates have been lifted locally, statewide, or nationally. You know, as somebody who reported on the African continent, there's an interesting parallel here between masking and condom use to prevent the spread of HIV and other sexually transmitted diseases. All of these things have a failure rate. 
Condoms have a 3% failure rate, I believe, in preventing pregnancy and also transmission of sexually transmitted diseases. Things happen. So this is a very similar argument that we're seeing here in the United States. Would you rather protect yourself, you know, reduce your risk of transmission to 3% or whatever it is with wearing a mask? Or would you rather be fatalistic and say, you know what, if there's a chance of failure, may as well just go with it and see what the universe gives me. And I think a lot of Americans are making this choice. And it's very interesting to see that after covering, you know, the 20 year AIDS epidemic that has pervaded in many other parts of the world. These are very similar arguments, just not conducted in public, obviously, because masks go on your face and condoms do not. And also on our trip to New Hampshire, President Biden answered a question about whether people should continue to wear masks on planes by saying, quote, it's up to them, unquote. So the president is saying if you feel as though you want to wear a mask, you're safer, you should wear one. Well, let's be clear about one thing, though. The president does have a plane. I mean, he technically does not own it. That belongs to the people of the United States. But on his plane, as Jen Psaki was quick to point out, masks are required on Air Force One. They will be continued to be required on Air Force One. And I thought that was an interesting point that she made. Yes, very good. Thank you for bringing that point up. Well, it's time now for a quick break. And when we return, the Biden administration announced new actions that will help bring millions of student loan borrowers closer to receiving debt forgiveness. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype, VOA White House correspondent Anita Powell and VOA executive producer Steve Reddish. Well, college students appear to be split regarding President Biden's student loan forgiveness program. Some college students support the program, saying it will give them a good start after college to be able to purchase a home and a car, while others say paying off student loan debt wouldn't solve the issue of rising tuition costs. College tuition has increased 169 percent from 1980 to 2019, and this is according to a Georgetown University report. The Department of Education says around 43 million Americans owe $1.7 trillion in student debt. So when you look at the root problem, it does appear to be the cost of college tuition. What is your take on this debt forgiveness program? A, it's a political issue. It's politics. It's trying to appeal to a very much growing sector of the electorate, which is people under 35 years old, 18 to 35, which soon will be the largest group of voters out there. And they're the ones who are holding most of this debt. The numbers are just staggering. And one of the theories about why costs have gone up so much and so far ahead of inflation is because of the ease of borrowing money to go to college. Basically, anybody can borrow to pay for college and the payments get stretched out over 20 years. So it doesn't seem as much. However, the interest rates are usually higher and the default rates are much higher. Over the last 20 years, 27% of borrowers have defaulted on their debt. Now, nobody has had to pay any loan payments back or be subject to collection action on their college debt 
since the pandemic began. And that's going to continue through August. So the Biden administration, I see, is trying to stretch that out just a little bit more to figure out a better way to handle this debt and reduce the debt on most of these young people. When he ran for president in 2020, President Biden did not endorse the idea of canceling student debt, which was the policy of some of his rivals. He acknowledges by doing that, it could benefit people who really don't need to have the debt canceled. So it is an election issue, certainly a political issue, and it's also just drowning a lot of young people, saddling them with an incredible amount of debt early in their careers. As Steve said, the White House has tried to, or the administration rather, has tried to kind of separate the wheat from the chaff here in terms of saying, you know, who should be liable for paying back their debt and who should not be. Because, you know, arguably, if you invest in an MBA and then go on to a very well-paid job at one of these New York trading firms, ostensibly you can afford to pay back your debt. So they've tried to link it to income. And they say that what they've tried to do is make it such that people who have lower income and a pretty high student debt rate don't have to pay back. It's indexed to their income. So sometimes they'll have a zero dollar payment, whereas people with higher income as a result of their you know, investment in higher education are liable. And this is kind of how the Biden administration has wrestled with that issue, because as Steve said, the president did and has flatly said, we're not going to forgive all student loans. We're not going to just write those off and cancel those. Because as he is aware, the Department of Education subsidizes universities already to the tune of tens of billions of dollars a year. This is something that the federal government is already shelling out a lot of money for. That has to be acknowledged that universities are already very much being supported by the federal government, and they are doing quite a bit already. I wanted to move on now to our final topic. Republican-led states are enacting a wave of new abortion restrictions, including Tennessee, Florida, Kentucky, and Oklahoma, just recently. We have seen this type of legislation being pushed in the past. So why is it so alarming to some this year? I can answer that. Midterm elections, this is another way to kind of appeal to the electorate that is values-driven in these heavily red states, these heavily Republican states. And so this is being used as a way to appeal to those voters and get them to the polls, you know, to support these candidates from this party. As well, the Democrats are going to use this issue as a way to get out their voters, especially if the Supreme Court in June rules as is it expected to rule on an abortion case out of Mississippi. It is expected that the court will either chip away further at the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that legalized abortion nationwide, or they could make the decision to overturn that landmark court decision and leave it to states to make the rules as far as whether or not to restrict abortions and how far to restrict abortions. It's a lightning rod issue here in the United States. Gallup has been tracking Americans' opinions on abortion since 1973. Right now, 49% say they're pro-choice, 47% say they are pro-life. If you break it down even further, a heavily majority of people believe that abortion should be legal, but most people believe that it should be legal with restrictions. Only about 20% of Americans believe that abortion should be illegal. 
So how this is going to play out, we're going to see it play out over the next six months and into the November elections, which are for members of Congress and some members of the Senate. One thing to remember in the United States, women historically vote in higher rates than men since they got the vote in 1920. So it will be a political issue and there will be some members of Congress who either win their races or lose their races, depending on the stance on abortion. And we will have to end the show on that note, as we are out of time. My thanks go to our panelists, VOA White House correspondent Anita Powell and VOA executive producer Steve Reddish. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News. 